I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a challenging time for state and local officials. We're having to rapidly embrace a 24-7 digital world in the midst of a pandemic. Luckily, iConstituent.com is on a mission to help digitize services with the first platform designed specifically for the elected official to manage one-to-one personal engagement. See for yourself how their texting outreach tools are making positive impacts during the pandemic, from the city of Los Angeles to the halls of the U.S. Congress. They allow leaders to leverage data sets of constituent phone numbers to share updates on COVID and assist constituents with breaking through the red tape to get the help they need. Visit iConstituent.com to access recent case studies and get started with 5,000 text messages at no cost. Again, that's iConstituent.com. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. I'm proud to say that we're closing in on both our second anniversary and our 50th episode. The New Deal and I are grateful to have shared some amazing leaders with you during that time. From Mayor Pete, when he was just a mayor, to rising stars in the Democratic Party like Senator Ramesh Akberry, Boise Mayor Lauren McLean, and Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. I believe that these leaders deserve a national stage. I hope you will help them, and me, by telling a friend about an honorable profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And guess what? We're now on Instagram. Follow us at hashtag an honorable profession. Today, we're going inside the Biden campaign with one of the people charged with delivering the vice president and all that is good and decent with a win this November. John McCarthy has long been a friend of the New Deal. He's the deputy political director of the Biden campaign. Previously, he was chief of staff to Congressman Brendan Boyle, serving as the youngest chief of staff in Congress. He served as the national co-chair of Catholics for Obama in 2012 and served as the chair of the Faith Council for the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign. Did I mention he's only 29? Enjoy our conversation about the campaign and the future of the free world. John McCarthy, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is so good to talk to you today. It is great to be with you guys. So uh, I should say it's Friday, August 7th when we're recording. Uh, the world will likely change four or five times between now and uh, <laughs> and the week uh, when this is posted. But um, I wanted to start Running a presidential campaign is crazy, sort of by definition. Running a presidential campaign against Donald Trump is uh, insane. Running a presidential campaign against Donald Trump in the midst of a pandemic uh, must be off the charts. Uh, How is it going and sort of what's your days like trying to manage this campaign in this environment? Uh, Well, I think you made the point perfectly. There's no textbook on how to do a campaign against Donald Trump or a campaign that is totally virtual. So um, I like to think of it through the lens of an eternal optimist that how often do you get to do something new in politics and each and every day that we're doing something is totally new. Um, uh, I will say, I think it's been, um, uh, our, our team has done a really good job at adapting to something that there's, you know, obviously no charted territory on. Um, we found some really new and innovative and exciting ways to reach voters Um, we've found, um, you know, new ways to virtually travel to states. We've found new ways for the vice president to 
um, recreate kind of the best ways that he interacts in a campaign, you know, in that kind of personal way by doing virtual rope lines and um, phone calls and things like that. So um, we feel good about the position that we're in. Obviously, as you mentioned, the world will change a million times between when this is being recorded and when it's released. Um, and then from then on out, every single week, it'll change a million times until we ultimately get towards November. But, um, you know, we feel good that we have um, the team that will have the resources, but, you know, ultimately that we have the candidates that'll make sure that we win in November. You've been involved in three presidential campaigns. Which parts of these sort of these changes to this virtual world do you think will stick uh, and which will uh, which will be a one time effort because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think that's kind of um, it's it's hard to predict, certainly. Um, But I will say, I think one of the things that I personally have been the most excited about seeing was kind of just the um, enthusiasm even around some of our grassroots finance events. Um, The events that we've done uh, with uh, the vice president and President Obama had, I think, nearly 200,000 people participate in it. Um, I think that way of democratizing and flattening the process, making sure that, you know, more people can partake at any level and feel a part that they're, you know, investing and taking ownership of the campaign. I think that's really good for the political process. Um, you know, I also think that, you know, we've built out a really robust action center on our website um, where people can, um, you know, text the same people that they would be doing calls to. They can make the traditional phone calls. Um, and it's actually allowing us to do voter contact at a much higher rate. Um, we've also have this new Team Joe app that's all relational organizing where um, you can download the app and it works through, you know, with your contacts to be able to text your neighbors and friends about why you're getting involved in the election. So the good thing is, is I think that when people are um, at home or socially distancing, or at least not kind of in the traditional workplace for many people, um, there have been new ways for people to kind of take ownership at home. Um, the thing that I think people miss the most is obviously the community feeling that people get around politics. I think the reason that a lot of people um, do this work is because you meet really interesting people all around really important work and a really important cause. Um, and I think that, you know, not just in politics, but largely people are missing that kind of sense of community during this time of COVID. So, you know, we've tried to be clever about ways that we're still creating and fostering that. But I think that that's the thing that I miss the most. I mean, I loved getting to be in our early states out in our field offices and, you know, interacting with our volunteers and seeing the amazing field staff that we have. That was always, you know, part of the best part of doing politics. Yeah, politics is fundamentally a people business. And so it's it's hard uh, when we're all disconnected in this way. So if I'm sitting at home listening to this and I'm just terrified, uh, of another four years of Donald Trump, uh, and excited about Joe Biden, um, what do I do? What's the best way that I can help you, uh, get a good outcome in November? Oh, excellent. I love that opportunity right out of the gate to make an organizing ask. Um, well, if you are sitting at home and you are excited about the vice president, the first thing that you should remind yourself is that national polls do not matter. Um, and I think that it's great. And we are very enthusiastic about the strong show of support we've seen nationally for the vice president and in battleground states. But ultimately, none of that matters except on Election Day. Um, so there's a number of ways that people can get involved. Um, if you're literally sitting there right now with your phone listening, you can just text the word join. Um, to 30330. Again, that's texting JOIN to 30330. Um, and that's a really easy way to get involved uh, in our organizing efforts globally. If you also take out your uh, phone, you can go to joebiden.com slash action, and that will take you to our action center online. Um, there you can, you know, 
make calls to neighbors, text neighbors, download our Team Joe app, find virtual events that are happening in your, you know, virtual neighborhood. Um, and those will, you know, range from events that are designed for your state to kind of our broad coalition effort, Women for Biden, African-Americans, Latino, LGBT. We have a young elected program. Um, so uh, lots of really exciting ways to make voter contact and kind of, you know, strengthen relationship with the campaign as we head into the fall. And uh, do it now. You don't want to wake up on November 4th and uh, and feel sad you, you didn't make that extra phone call or uh, reach out to people and, and help the campaign. So in a world where we're managing a pandemic, we're managing an economic crisis, uh, we're talking about racial injustice, uh, talking about climate change, how does the campaign um, sort of manage to to keep to the message and the policies around so many competing huge issues that that are uh, that are that are really engaging the public right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's cert- You know, we can make educated guesses about um, you know what we'll be talking about come November. But if you travel back a year in the past, I mean, who would have thought we would have ended up in this moment with all of the things that you just enumerated? So obviously, this is a um, Uh, will be an ongoing process. But the thing that we like to kind of underscore in this moment is, you know, the the two biggest moving pieces of this is one, we have a candidate and a message that resonates. And two, um, we ultimately believe that, you know, the map favors uh, Joe Biden because of the type of candidate that he is. And um, kind of on the first point of that, you know, we think that there are some really important um, evergreen kind of, you know, polls and numbers that we've been seeing that are really good indicators. And as long as we keep tracking in those, we think um, it demonstrates that we're performing, you know, where we need to be with a lot of voters. Um, you know, there was a, a poll recently that said that, uh, that Joe Biden had a nine point lead in terms of being the right leader for this moment. Um, that 62% of Americans uh, or likely voters had uh, believed that Donald Trump um, is not handling the coronavirus um, uh, pandemic effectively. We think, you know, as we looked past, you know, uh, through the primaries and kind of we're analyzing where we've been, um, in many ways, you know, we think that this election will ultimately be a referendum on Trump. And one of the biggest qualities that people are looking for um, is someone who can ultimately unite the country. We feel really strong coming out of the primary with 94% of the Democratic voters saying that um, they support the vice president. Um, uh, and a 12-point lead right now with independent likely voters. So we feel good about the vice president's message of unity, his kind of overall framing of being in the battle for a soul of the nation. And we think that that's really what this is ultimately going to be about. Um, And we think that, you know, as a unifying figure at the top of the ticket, um, you know, we think we have great opportunities to protect and expand the majority in the House of Representatives, you know, take back the Senate and kind of make really meaningful inroads and down-ballot races across the country with amazing, um, you know, uh, elected officials who are on the ballot that we hope to be able to help and support. Um, so we feel as though the, the candidate and the message, because, you know, we haven't changed and haven't wavered, is strong as we head towards the general election. And as we're looking at the map, I mean, we're kind of thinking about this in, you know, three different ways. We're looking at, um, you know, the states that uh, some would think they're the kind of safe battleground states, you know, we're taking nothing for granted. We think that, um, you know, we need to do all of the work that we um, need to do to organize and talk to voters in the states that Democrats won in 2016 um, to make sure that those are still a base part of what we're looking at. Um, You know, but we also want to look at winning back the states um, that President Obama and Vice President Biden won in 2008 and 2012. 
Um, and then again, because the vice president is at the top of the ticket, we've seen some really encouraging um, polling in states like Arizona and Texas and Georgia uh, that we think um, will you know, potentially come online. So we're starting from as broad as a map of possible um, as, we, as we head into the fall. Um, so between those two points, I mean, that's the thing that I think we're kind of uh, using as our guiding light, um, you know, staying true to who he is and what our core message is, um, and ultimately, you know, looking to compete and organize everywhere, um, because we think that Joe Biden is such a unique candidate for this moment. And I I think it is, I mean, I, I, we're, I'm looking at the same polls, and um, I'm, I'm excited both about uh, the prospects for Joe Biden presidency and also, yeah, for winning the Senate and the Congress, because without a without a majority across the board, it makes it very hard to get the priorities done, which is what the American people fundamentally want. How do you prepare for the the chaos that is Donald Trump, right? Uh, the both uh, dirty tricks, the just setting off uh, of you know, Twitter bombing on different issues that, that distract from the fundamental issues that our nation is facing. How, how do you prepare for this uh, opposition versus, versus the other opposition that you faced in, in your other campaigns that you've worked on? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, like let's use today as an example. Um, today, as we're having this conversation, um, this morning, the vice president put out a statement in response to President Trump yesterday saying that he is anti-God, anti-church, anti-Bible, going after the vice president's faith, which is something that the vice president has obviously talked extensively about. Um, so that is something that we spent, you know, part of our day responding to today. I think by the time that people are listening to this podcast, it's going to probably be likely that they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot that that happened. Um, because it seems that every single day um, there is some new attack thrown out by the president. Um, but the thing that, you know, we said through the primary, um, and we really believe as we head towards the general is that people know the vice president, they know his embassy, they know his leadership. Um, and they know that he, you know, has this unique capacity to bring people together. Um, so I think that, I mean, we're going to remain true to that as we head towards the fall, of course, we'll respond to things that the, the president is throwing out there, but we feel confident that, you know, the voters know, um, who the vice president is and kind of what this contrast will be. Um, there was an article I just read the other day when they talked about, you know, what does the first day of a Biden presidency look like? And one of the first things they just said is, you know, imagine waking up and not worrying about the tweets, not worrying about, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, and I think that that is actually a really important contrast. And, you know, for some, you know, voters who, you know, we've heard uh, from that, you know, supported President Trump in the uh, last election and are now thinking about supporting the vice president or looking elsewhere. Um, you know, they voted for change and what they got was chaos. Um, and I think, you know, we are going to continue to demonstrate that the vice president knows how to lead, knows how to bring people together. Um, and we think that that's ultimately going to be the best retort. I, I, I can't tell you how much I can't wait for that day running uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> at the county level and responding to the pandemic when there's no right. uh, tests available, when there's no strategy, uh, there's no tracing. It's just, you know, and having every state and every county and every city on their own uh, and actually having to combat messages from the, from the white house about what's safe or not. It's, it's just been, it's been right. awful uh, and embarrassing and frustrating and to, yeah, just have normalcy, um, and sanity uh, in our policies will be just much less all the great things that can get done 
uh, on so many right. issues. And for the new deal leaders, right, who are listening to this, um, and as you just kind of pointed out, you know, governing at the county level, I mean, the vice president is someone who understands the important role that each level of government plays and how to kind of make that all work in concert to serve, you know, serve constituents. Um, it's an important part of the argument that the vice president has made is, you know, he is a, a demonstrated, proven leader who knows how to actually get things done. It's not aspirational. It's not, um, you know, a vision. It's a, it's a demonstrated track record um, with a total respect and understanding for, you know, all levels of elected office and really aiming to make sure that all of those levels of government have an effective seat at the table. To me, that's one of the most exciting things that I think a Biden presidency um, would be able to promote. One, you know, on the partisan side, you know, helping expand, um, you know, wins for the candidates that we believe in, but ultimately, you know, having someone uh, in the Oval Office who knows how to govern and make government work together. I mean, I just, you know, think that that would just be such a contrast from where things have been. And I don't think that that has been clearer than through the kind of federal government's mishandling of the COVID crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. When I have delegations come visit from other countries and I sort of explain that you have the federal government running in one direction, California is running in a different direction, my county is running in a direction and the city is running in a different direction. And it's not surprising that we don't get great outcomes. And when we can all align and work cooperatively, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, blue states, red states, uh, it would just make such a difference. And a pandemic you think would be the unifying force. Instead, it's he's uh, managed to turn it into this just complete disaster. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you. I'm fascinated by uh, your, uh, I mean, you're only 29. You're uh, helping run a presidential campaign. You've been, uh, you seem to have a lifetime of politics, uh, even though uh, you've only only been able to vote for 11 years. Um, talk about what inspired you to get involved at age 18 to, to become the Democratic Party chair uh, of your local uh, committee in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, how, how, how did this become how you chose to spend your life? Yeah, um, uh, thanks. And I'll be brief because I don't know how interesting it is. But the, um, you know, my dad is a, a union carpenter. Um, and, uh, my grandfather was fire chief in our hometown. It was on zoning board and all of, you know, those types of community type positions. And, um, none of them were directly political, but because of their kind of community involvement, we were always around kind of elected officials, politicians, and there was always this sense of being involved. Um, uh, I, as you mentioned, I ran for party chair when I was 18, um, uh, and one, which was very fun and a great way to learn about elections and the role that the party can play. Um, but it was actually um, a position that my grandfather held like decades before that. Um, and I just think kind of growing up around that, it was always, you know, kind of instilled in us that you were supposed to really care about your community. And um, it was a really, you know, blue collar working class town. And, um, you know, my parents were so focused on service and giving back. My mom ran the local senior center. Um, so it was just something that was always kind of around. And um, I always thought that party politics was a really interesting place to get started and involved because um, you helped, you know, advocate for who would be your nominee for any number of offices and, um, you know, kind of doing the actual organizing work to advance an ideology, which um, I was really excited about. So um, it's been fun. I've had great bosses. I've had really um, great experiences. I got to go on to work for my hometown congressman. Um, from New Jersey and um, had learned a lot at every single one of those turns. So 
Um, I always say that for people like thinking about politics, uh, you know, growing up where I did, a lot of my friends chose to go into finance or things like that. And I always said they might have nicer cars, but I will definitely have better stories. Um, so it's been a lot of fun uh, getting to do, um, you know, the stuff I've had the experience to do. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, just yesterday, uh, Donald Trump attacked the uh, faith of Joe Biden, who's who's been very clear in his in his faith over his career and the importance of that in his life. Faith has also been really important in your life and in your politics. Uh, you worked as the co-chair of the Catholics for Obama in 2012 and the chair of the Faith Council for Hillary in 2016. Can you talk about the Democrats have this complicated uh, relationship with faith when it used to be sort of one of the driving forces for progressive politics? Um, can you talk about the role of religion both in your own life and in, and in the Democratic Party? Happy to. So I'll say this, which is something that the vice president says all the time. But I mean, I grew up uh, going to Catholic school uh, my entire life. Uh, we had uh, the amazing Sisters of Mercy, uh, who totally instilled this kind of teaching of social justice and, um, you know, caring and, you know, fighting for those on the margins of society. And that was just so ingrained in my entire education that my parents, you know, sacrificed to give my sister and I. Um, and so to me, that kind of Catholic social teaching has been so to the core of kind of everything I believe. And on my personal side of politics, I always say that I'm a Democrat because of my faith, not in spite of it. Um, but it's interesting. And to kind of talk about why and where I think that fits in the Democratic Party um, is kind of actually, it fits in with the kind of overall message of the New Deal, too, um, which is that you need to find um, uh, candidates for elected office who can speak to and um, are reflective of the communities in which they're running. Um, and that is something that is not always the most, you know, popular mainstream global message. But um, I think, you know, not just faith voters, but look at rural communities, um, look at sometimes the moderates and centrists in the party. Um, it's important, you know, to you know, find a candidate who can unite off of um, a, a message or a community uh, and actually have those people be the ones that are seeking office in those tougher Democratic, uh, you know, lean Democratic or purple seats. Um, so in terms of why the faith outreach piece is really important is because, um, you know, depending on the polls that you look at, I mean, anywhere from, uh, you know, high 60s to low 90s percent of the country identifies um, as people of faith. And ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of the punditry class would sit and talk about how that is something that has been you know, co-opted by the right, you know, that religion, uh, religious voters are basically all aligned with the Republican Party, which I just don't think is true. Because I think, you know, from my own personal understanding of faith, when you talk about things such as economic equity and, and justice and environmental stewardship and, um, you know, just immigration practices and access to health care, I mean, these are things that, I mean, are straight from my own faith tradition, you know, that calls us to care about these things. So to me, I mean, I think that that is an effective message to talk to faith and value voters with um, when I'm talking about politics. And I think that that translates again to some of the other constituencies that, again, so many would write off for the Democratic Party, rural voters, um, uh, like I said, some of the kind of moderate and centrist groups. So, um, you know, yes, I think it's important to talk about faith, but I think it's important to do so with authenticity. 
And I think the same thing for any of those other constituencies. So um, I think, you know, as a party, we need to make sure that we are being the most, you know, open big tent that we can. And um, of course, not compromising on values, but, um, you know, talking to people in a way that resonates with who they are. Yeah. And it's, I guess, how do you think, I mean, what do you foresee for the future of faith in the Democratic Party? You have, you know, uh, Vice President Biden, President Obama, who were deeply uh, religious men uh, and often talked about their connection uh, and the role that religion played in their in their values and their politics. Yet the, the sort of meta narrative is that uh, the Democratic Party is no longer the place for uh for religion, is that is is that going to change? Is that is there is there something in the way that we're talking or not talking, um, or uh, is is someone going to challenge that that mega narrative? Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, because I think that there are these like mega narratives that are just like fun for people to write about. I mean, you know, there was the same mega narrative that wrote the obituary of Joe Biden's presidential campaign for a year. And here he is as our party's nominee. So, I mean, uh, you know, the people who want to sit and say, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't know how to reach faith voters or any of these other communities, I just think is wrong. Because I think if you look at some of the really exciting trends and up and coming, um, you know, stars in the party, um, I think many of them talk through a a faith and values lens. I mean, look at um, another New Deal leader, Mayor Pete, who talks so authentically about this issue in a way that was um, I think really resonating with, um, you know, young voters, uh, people thinking about how do you talk about these things in a next generational lens. Um, you know, I think for faith voters, that is something that's, you know, was deeply resonating. And I think, you know, ultimately, like, you know, we can talk about it through the lens of faith, which I think is an important distinction, because I think for a lot of faith voters, they don't sit and necessarily say to themselves, I'm making this choice or vote because of my faith. Um, but really for them, what it is about is values. Um, and I think like that is something that probably translates, you know, more broadly across communities of faith and people, you know, who are not religious um, it is really the message of values. It's part of the reason that I think like the framing of our campaign, a battle for the soul of the nation is so deeply resonating with people. Um, and it's because what it really is about is that kind of moral, not in the religious sense, just, you know, value sense, moral contrast of are we going to be a community, you know, a country that, you know, I look out for my neighbor, I believe in community, or are we going to take the president's vision of us against them? Um, and I think at this really unique time, um, yes, the issues are so important because um, the issues will help, you know, are the exhibit of our values. You know, when we're, when we're talking about values, they have to be backed up by substantive policy that will reflect them in government. But um, I do think that at this moment, after four years of Donald Trump, people are really looking to have a conversation about who we are as a country. Um, and that's something where I think the kind of faith and values message is really important. I thank you for saying that. I think, I think, yeah, I think it is an opportunity. I think the more politicians, especially in a day and age where people are asking for, correctly so, asking for more authenticity from their elected officials people really speaking about the values that move them and then connecting the policy to that uh, is the, is the right way to go. And we need more of it Uh, in terms of your day-to-day life of running the, uh, uh, the Biden campaign. Like, are you just, is it just never ending zoom calls or uh, 
<laughs> what's it like? Uh, what's it like right now for you um, being involved in in it, trying to run a national campaign? I'm the worst millennial because I hate Zoom calls. I'm, I like so prefer audio calls. Um, partially because I think for all of our team, um, uh, it's obviously early mornings into late nights. So um, I feel like you're in gradual stages of getting ready throughout the day before you have to kind of present on external facing Zoom calls. <laughs> Um, so that is definitely something that I think people, uh, keep in mind, but, um, uh, you know, are you wearing shorts on between. all these zoom calls? Uh, yeah, but, but always a collared shirt when I, when I have to be on camera. <laughs> um, but, uh, that is, and that's like my favorite thing too, is when you see all of these, like, uh, like I, you know, some of, I follow some of the new deal leaders, uh, on Instagram who will be doing these uh, you know, press conferences virtually or things. And everyone has these like blazers on and then they're in shorts and flip flops uh, other than that. So it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, quarantine chic, I guess, but that's the, uh, the new look for people, but it's, um, it, it's a blend of zoom calls, uh, conference calls, internal and external um, for our team on the political department. Uh, a huge amount of our work is obviously um, working with elected officials and outside um, endorsers to kind of help us carry the vice president's message. So um, a lot of that will be doing external briefings. Um, you know, we organize our kind of state leadership calls in individual battleground states. Um, while we're in this kind of moment of, you know, staying at home, um, we're doing these virtual travel days where the vice president or Dr. Biden will virtually travel to a state like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, and um, what that looks like is, you know, they virtually arrive in the morning. Uh, they'll do, you know, virtual roundtables with elected officials. Uh, sometimes they'll tour local businesses virtually and talk with business owners about what's affecting them. Uh, and then they'll do rallies in the evening, which we would build the same way as we would build an in-person rally with our field team, uh, making phone calls to voters in that area. Um, We've seen this to be really effective. It helps us still earn local media coverage. It allows us to kind of travel exclusively to a battleground media market. Um, so, you know, all of the prep that would happen for a, a usual, you know, principal level trip, uh, all of that still happens. It just doesn't involve the travel time. Um, so, you know, the way in which we're doing things is different, but the same kind of stresses and timing and cadence of a presidential campaign is still the same. I can't, I can't imagine. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, you got, you got months to go. Yeah. I will say the one plus of doing this is, you know, while I'm at home, I'm definitely eating better than I did while I was on the campaign trail. So this is much better, uh, uh being at home. It's a lot less takeout. <laughs> Good. There's a, gotta, gotta find the silver lining. Uh, the last exactly. thing I want to, I'm an optimist. The last thing I want to talk to you about is, uh, from one proud, uh, Irish American to another, um, you've been really involved in, you know, continuing to connect uh, Ireland to the United States, which obviously has a long, uh, proud relationship. In a Biden administration, what do you think um, needs to be done to to further strengthen those ties or to leverage those ties uh, for the benefit of both countries? Let me, oh, I'll answer that. I'm going to throw in a bonus answer on that too. But the, uh, I obviously am a very proud uh, Irish American. Um, as the name John McCarthy would suggest, um, I will tell you the Irish American community loves Joe Biden. Um, this is, you know, we just did in a virtual rally last night that had something like 1400 RSVPs to it, um, to hear from, you know, surrogate speakers on behalf of the vice president, um, all from the Irish American community. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's an, 
historically a really important relationship. I mean, it's a community that cares so much about, you know, faith and family and, um, but, you know, also has, you know, very proud, um, uh, legacy involvement in the organized, uh, labor community, um, and, you know, good advocacy on uh, immigration as well. So, um, I do think that, you know, for a lot of the issues that the U S Irish, uh, or the Irish American community cares about, um, they would find a, you know, a great friend in Joe Biden as president. Um, but the secondary piece to why that work I think is actually really important. Um, is because um, something that I think is often lost in um, the divisive rhetoric that's coming out of President Trump on, you know, us against them and and the anti-immigrant rhetoric that has come out of there. You know, for communities like the Irish American community who have been immigrating to the U.S. for hundreds of years, it's really important to remember that we all have this shared heritage. Um, Many of us have a shared heritage of an immigrant experience. Um, and I think that, you know, for those of us who are families have been here for several generations, um, sometimes we forget about that and don't see ourselves in those stories. So I think part of the reason that kind of, you know, staying in touch with whether it's Irish or Polish, Ukrainian, whatever it is, um, it, all of those heritages really matter because it kind of binds us up in that common experience of, you know, coming to America um, and hopefully the empathy that that the empathy and understanding that that should promote. So. Um, yes, it's important to talk about all of these, you know, great opportunities for diaspora communities between, you know, mutually beneficial bilateral relationships. But ultimately, the important purpose in that is um, recognizing that you're part of that immigrant experience, that you came here to, you know, try and give back to the country, but also that you see yourself in all of these stories that, the, you know, where President Trump has been, um, you know, pulling families apart and, you know, all of the terrible things that we've seen at the border. Um, that your own family story should be tied up in that. Um, and, you know, it should force some action on your part. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, a nation of immigrants. And uh, uh, our first Catholic president, in fact, wrote an entire book about uh, about the U.S. proud as a nation of uh, immigrants, John F. Kennedy. And then um, it's amazing how much uh, of that has been uh, lost over the years. And it would be great to restore Right. Absolutely. John, I just want to take a moment and thank you, uh, obviously, for your work to support uh, and elect Joe Biden, um, but also for the way that you've really reached out to the New Deal leaders Um, in doing so. I think you're right. We make uh, we not only build the future of the Democratic Party, but we also make for an effective governance when we can align local, state and national politics and champion innovative approaches to solve the many, many challenges we face. Um, and you've been a great conduit for those conversations. And I just want to take a second and appreciate your leadership. Oh, well, thank you for that. And I will say a special thank you to um, the awesome New Deal leaders who have been with us early, um, have been with us out on the campaign trail, um, and those who you know are, uh, have joined even more recently and are helping us as we head towards the general election. In so many ways, I think that the New Deal leaders just represent the best of what the Democratic Party has to offer. They're people who know how to campaign and win in tough places, but ultimately know how to win because our ideas are the better ones, um, which is what that should ultimately be about. So, you know, the forward-looking ideas that come out of the group, I think, help foster really important dialogue, um, help us campaign better, um, and like I said, have given us some of our best voices out on the trail. So um, excited for more partnership um, and excited to see more of them 
uh, out on the virtual campaign trail. Yes, we are here for you. And, uh, and thank you. And uh, yeah, keep fighting uh, in your shorts and flip flops uh, all the way to November. <laughs> thanks a million. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>